Hello and welcome to the Closing Conditions Podcast. My name is John Crabb. I'm the Managing Editor of International Financial Law Review in New York. My guest for this episode of the podcast is Samson Lowe, Head of Asian M&A at the Swiss Bank, UBS in Hong Kong. I first met Samson on a trip to Hong Kong in 2019 during the height of the protests and can safely say that few people understand the corporate space in Hong Kong, China and further into APAC, Bethard and Samson. As a regular guest on the media circuit, Samson regularly appears on mainstream television and is also a regular contributor to IFLR. So given that Hong Kong and China are in particularly interesting situations right now, with strict COVID conditions and an ever-changing political atmosphere, there's certainly a lot to discuss. Hi, Samson. It's great to talk to you again, and thank you so much for joining me today. Good to talk to you again too, John. Timing for this discussion is very interesting. With, with me in New York and, and you in Hong Kong, it's going to be kind of fascinating to examine the interaction between China, Hong Kong, and the rest of the world. Yeah. I think we should start with a discussion on the 2022 M&A markets. So what would you say are some of the challenges that you're facing as a, a bank in Hong Kong doing business right now, um, domestically and on a global level? Sure. Look, um, it's an interesting time to be talking about this because um, when when we walked into uh, 2022, and, and you do remember we're coming from an extremely strong 2021, is an all-time high for, for M&A activities globally, not just in Asia, uh, not just in APAC, but, but globally. So walking into uh, 2022, in fact, on the New Year's Day, right, I was expecting it to be a even more robust year in 2022 because the pipeline that we were sitting in in 2021 couldn't be better. Now, however, um, I, I didn't, I, I wouldn't say that the pipeline has reduced in any shape or form. However, what we would not likely see this year is the return of cross-border deals, right? Because as you, as as we are still in a in an era where the cross-border travel, cross-border restriction is still uh, is still everywhere, so it's actually very hard for um, for for us market participants to be uh, uh, back on full steam ahead on high-profile cross-border deals. So what that means is that what we are seeing in 2021 is going to be a repeat for 2022. Um, I think the trends will still follow, right? It will still be uh, quite a large number of tech privates in certain markets, in Hong Kong markets, in US markets for the ADLs, but, but that's also partially because of the, uh, the uh, some of the regulatory changes uh, for some of the Chinese companies in the US, whether it's SEC review or whether it's um, Chinese regulatory uh, reviews on some of these uh, companies in certain sectors. Um, and and at the same time, yeah, because of some of the, um, I would say some of the geopolitical reasons, so there will be more and more Chinese companies trying to seek at least a dual listing in, in Hong Kong or China, or at a very minimum, delist from the US first. So some of the themes that we're seeing in 2021 will repeat itself. Um, and, and at the same time, like DSPAC will continue to be a big overriding theme this year. In fact, at the beginning of this year, we actually saw a number of, of these SPAC being announced where, or rumor in the market, permanently rumor in the market with Asian sponsors. Asian, I, I would say Asian SPACs listed in the US. But now, yeah, as you know, there are also additional avenues for listing now in Singapore and also in Hong Kong. And the Hong Kong market is actually getting quite up to speed on it. So we are going to see the return of these SPAC targets uh, particularly Chinese targets, because they're more suitable for Hong Kong listed SPACs, uh, and, and, and maybe Singapore listed SPACs too. Um, so I think that the SPAC theme, but, but it, you will see like several batches. The first batch is you're going to see the US, it's a, a lot of the SPACs 
uh, that were being targeted by the U.S. suspects as they come to uh, the 24-month expiry uh, expiration towards the end of this year, they will get increasingly uh, aggressive in terms of uh, trying to consummate a merger. So you're going to see a lot of these spike activities probably throughout the year, and it will be even more frequent and more rampant in the second half of the year. And, and that I expect would drive a lot of the M&A volume this year. Um, and then we will, con we will start seeing uh, some of the spec targets of Chinese targets uh, being merged with Hong Kong specs once they are priced, because now there are, I think, about six of them, six of them being filed, but not priced yet. Once they are priced, once we see some aftermarket performance, you're going, also going to see the Hong Kong, Hong Kong spec and also the Singapore specs too. And, and at the same time, the, um, uh, there will continue to be some divestment of, of global assets uh, or say a particular segment of a global asset coming to market. I think we have, um, I think you are familiar with it now. There are quite a number of them coming to the market and some of them actually are financial sponsors on too, particularly in the region, in, in Asia Pacific region. There are a number of uh, Asian Pacific or Chinese sponsors uh, divesting some of the assets that they acquired a couple of years ago uh, or targeting a pretty high valuation. Um, but possibly, they, they could possibly get it done in this market too. So um, I think we'll continue to see quite a lot of sponsor activities, particularly on the divestment side. And how does that differ from the challenges you face operating in mainland China? What are the challenges and opportunities you're looking at when it comes to China and cross-border businesses? Yeah. <laughs> Look, um, I, I would still I would say that actually not that much different because um, for the longest time, uh, yeah, the traveling out of Hong Kong or flights getting into Hong Kong has been a challenge. Um, but but it's just that in 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 recent weeks, right, it has become increasingly difficult, right, and there are no flights coming into Hong Kong. Uh, but I would I, I would say that what what that what that really implies is that um, previously we were expecting a lot of cross-border travel, well, they may not necessarily be coming out of Hong Kong, right? People can still fly out of, say, Shanghai or fly out of Singapore, right? So if people really want to get some uh, cross-border deals done, it, it, still could, it, it could still be done. But it's just that uh, we are still living in an environment where cross-border travel is not as natural and as easy as it used to be three years ago. And that is why I still, I'm not that hopeful of cross-border a lot of cross-border transactions recovering this year. Uh, we, we're seeing some of it. And in fact, um, even late last year, we announced uh, Taiwan into Germany deal. Uh, this link in Taiwan acquiring Leone Industrial Solutions um, is about like 450 million euro size. I think we will continue to see this type of deals being done. And they are pretty much done virtually, right? There is very little... Um, to physical due diligence, right? Uh, of course, um, we, we did utilize some of the people on the ground in Germany that we have, uh, but, but it's actually very little, uh, very little physical due diligence when compared to the past. So I think for deal size, sub 1 billion cross-border, uh, it could still work, and, and, but, but people just have to get used to doing it more virtually. Um, and I would still say that, yeah, uh, maybe once, now that the uh, uh, last year, I think Japan, was uh, uh, Japan? Well, they have their fair share of um, of, of of cases uh, of COVID cases, and then there was also the uh, the Tokyo Olympics too, right? Uh, but but now that that is behind us, and I think as as the uh, as as we get more clarity with the uh, with the virus situation, may maybe in the second half of the year, I would expect Japan uh, back on the uh, the, the cross border deals 
uh, again, and likewise for some other countries and some other regions too. And in fact, even despite all the uh, challenges, right? Thailand last year, as you guys have seen, they bought salvages, right? A, a Thai company bought salvages. So a lot of the uh, a lot of the Southeast Asian companies, they were still able to take on sizable cross-border deals. But as far as China, I think it will be primarily targeted towards Europe. Uh, um, that's just how it is because it's the geopolitical reason. So taking on something in the US is still challenging. Uh, but, but I would still say that the pace of cross-border will probably be slower than what we wish it would be. During the heaviest lockdowns in the pandemic, there were large amounts of deals that were done totally virtually. How come this process isn't being used now, given the ongoing situation in Hong Kong? Yeah, I, there's still a certain element of human touch to it. Um, we, we always have this conversation. Even like technically, you could do site visits. Uh, or even factory visit using drones, right? But there would always be some corners you cannot see, right? There would always be, you You were always thinking, are they hiding some dead body somewhere in the stockroom, right? So so you would always want to be able to get a, a real, real physical touch to it. And also, um, especially sometimes when you are negotiating with very sensitive and touchy issues, people always think that being able to read that person's expression and being able to have some body language is helpful. To the negotiation, so so that is why you are still not even though. But but I I have to say, a lot of market participants, a lot of uh, corporate clients, they are actually getting used to doing um, uh, primarily virtual due diligence. But but there will be this last stretch, maybe the final negotiation or the final side visit or or even the handshake. Right, they would rather do it in person. From my perspective, as a foreign national living in the US, it's been interesting to see the perception change when it comes to Hong Kong over the last few years. I visited a few years ago and I was full of expats and foreigner. From what I read, this number is falling dramatically. And one thing that has really ramped up in that time is the use and the rules surrounding CFIUS or the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. How has the changing role of the Interagency Committee impacted the work you do and the deals that you do? It's actually, I would say that it's actually making it a lot more interesting these days. Yeah, because yes, we, we are dealing with uh, I would say rapidly changing regulatory environment, not just in China, but also uh, 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 overseas countries, how they view Chinese uh, Chinese buyers, and how they see how they view, I would say, non uh, uh, buyers not from their own continents, right? So we we are constantly dealing with this big variable in a lot of tra our transactions, and actually that makes the deal deal making a lot more interesting because you always have to factor in the additional dimension of regulatory approval, how long it takes, how forthcoming it is, and also certain type of deal protection. Uh, when, especially when you're running a sell side of this asset. And also, the, to be frank, yeah, the seller's perception of, of bias coming from another continent. Yes, yes, it is true that maybe certain situations when they would prefer that the bidders to be from their own continents because it's less regulatory approval. Um, but, but that makes all the deal making a lot more interesting than in the past. And, and deals still get done, but yes, it is. Uh, I would say a bit more unpredictable than in the past, right? So it, it, what that means is also, you know, we have to invest a lot more time in regulatory analysis, uh, even when taking on a transaction, how likely it is that we will be able to get through all the different reviews and also having some kind of contingency measures, right? Uh, if the regulatory bodies say no, should we divest this or should we offer this or should we kind of offer this, right? So it makes, it makes deal making a lot more interesting. And I would say that a lot more work is now being done on the regulatory front than in the past. Yeah, when you're, when you're doing this, a lot of the time is spent on like negotiation and also on due diligence. And have there been any changes to CFIUS and the way it operates? Or has it impacted your practice in the last months or years? 
Not entirely, not not really, because the I think the CVS, uh, I would say certain guidelines of CVS, how they look at uh, foreign buyers, looking at certain industries and looking at whether it, it expands to like minority stake acquisitions. I think that has been quite clear throughout, right? And in fact, that's also the reason why I think these days Chinese buyers looking at U.S. asset is almost, is almost grinding to a haunt, right? Um, and at the same time, it, 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 it does benefit certain other countries that may not necessarily be subject to the same level of severe review. So I think we're, we're quite used to it now, right? Um, but, but, but yeah, once in a while, I will still have a Chinese client uh, willing to look at a U.S. asset, maybe smaller in size. And we do spend quite a lot of time to get comfort around CVS and also having some kind of contingency measures. Other countries like the U.K. and Germany, for example, have introduced similar regulations. Yep. Are those having a similar impact? Um, there are certain impacts too, yeah, especially in certain in certain sensitive industries, right? That that may that may um, that may get in the crosshair of like nationalist interest, right? So so yeah, we we, we are pretty cautious, right? In, in some of these situations where yeah, there has been uh, some precedents of 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 um, of of certain uh, regulatory reviews on certain subsectors, uh, you will be particularly careful about how we should be advising our client on taking on a transaction of that particular sector. But overall, right, I think those countries is, if you are not into those particular sectors, you will still be okay. And, and in fact, that there are already certain precedents of some of those deals being rejected in those particular sectors. So you know what they are, right? So, so you will be advising your client to be more cautious towards those sectors. Are there any particular sectors you could use as an example? Um, in Germany, the semiconductor industry is one where one needs to tread carefully. Yeah. I've heard rumors that the United States is looking to introduce similar rules that would give them the power to block out outbound M&A that has the potential to cause security concerns. Uh, this would be for the first time. Mm. This would change mm -hmm. the goalposts quite significantly if enacted. What sort of impact do you think it might have on China and Hong Kong's markets? Mm. Look, this um, it's always interesting. Whenever there is certain regulatory reviews, to be honest, yeah, initially it seems quite daunting, or it seems like it it could becomes uh, an insurmountable hurdle. But what it turns out is that the the market participants, uh, I'm talking about the clients and also the bankers, right? They're actually very good at adapting. So usually, what would happen is, yeah, it's it's it actually creates more opportunities. Okay, so if if there's some restrictions on on outbound, right? Yeah, people will be looking at uh, what about uh, more domestic deals, right? And, and and America has always been a very, very big uh, domestic M and A market. So people will be naturally looking at more of those deals. And at the same time, people will also be revisiting some of the U.S. acquisitions of outbound assets in the past, whether there will be some kind of review retroactively. Right. So that also creates more opportunities because when people look at some of the U.S. acquisitions in the past and they want to proactively divest them, that creates a divestment M&A opportunity. So I would say that um, some of these regulatory reviews it is, is always initially it sounds a lot more daunting than it really is. But, but, but very quickly, the market participants will adapt to it. Another huge topic on this front is the trade war between the U.S. and China. During the Trump administration, things got quite heated with the constant back and forth and tariffs that had a huge impact on the domestic markets of both countries and seemingly led to the supply chain issues we're all facing now. Things have certainly quietened down on that front in the media, over here at least. But what are the latest developments and, and how is it impacting deal flow? 
Um, I would say that some of these, like, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly, like trade wars and some of these, like, tariffs. Yes, it's, um, if you look at closely, right, yes, there, there has been uh, some tariffs raised on, um, on, on what, uh, red wine and also on certain type of uh, consumable goods between China and Australia. So that also explains why, uh, recently, there is actually not a whole lot of China into Australia deals. There used to be a lot more, right? Uh, but because of some of these trade wars, yeah, it does affect uh, uh, it does affect deal making. But again, as I said, right, just like the your previous question about CVS, right? People adapt to it very quickly, right? Okay, so if we don't focus on China into South into Australia, well, China these days are focusing more China into Southeast Asia, especially some of the Southeast Asian countries have very good diplomatic relationship with China, and Australia turns out to be a very good M and A market last year, right? Look at it is all defense, all domestic Australia m &A. So yeah, people adapt to it very quickly um, as a result of the trade war, as a result of tariffs, or as, as a result of, 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 of regulatory reviews. China, and therefore Hong Kong, has adopted incredibly strict zero COVID policy, which is impacting foreign travel, and I'm sure yep. also your day-to-day -day life. What impact is the policy having on you and on UBS's ability to do work? Does the fact that UBS is a swift bank have any bearing on them? To be honest, it's, yeah, this zero COVID policy has always been since the beginning of, of, of the first wave of virus. It actually didn't really affect our deal flows too. Because yeah, we have, um, yeah, as you know, we, we are one of the fortunate international banks. There's a fully operational license in China. Uh, and now we have four offices in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, and also, um, uh, and, and, and we, we actually never really missed a beat. Well, because when it comes to like China deals, right? Yes, maybe certain people from Hong Kong may not be able to travel to China, uh, but but for those who are able to travel to China, we do utilize them uh, staying in China doing the quarantine for like three four months. So in the end, and at the same time, we do have a very sizable operation in in China. We have another like, hundred bankers based on all the different offices. Um, so as a result, that uh, we were still able to handle a lot of the China M and A without missing a beat. Right. And, and technically, yeah, flying out of Hong Kong to other countries is not an issue. It's just that there may not be a flight back to Hong Kong. Right. But but uh, again, if you really have to do this, right, there are also ways to get around it. Right. People will fly to some other countries, stay there for like two, three weeks, go through the quarantine. And then from those other countries, get back to China and then from China back to Hong Kong. Right. <laughs> it's a long winded way. But but there are ways to do it. But as far as our deal flow, it hasn't really affected our deal flow, even between China and Hong Kong. We have enough people in China that can continue to carry on a lot of the MA activities. And that is why we um, clients continue to come to us um, when it comes to China MA, even though yes, yes, uh, Hong Kong is a is a very important operation. Uh, it hasn't really affected our deal flow. There's been a lot of changes in the last two years to the way that Hong Kong's relationship with China is structured. How has that been to deal with and has it led to any changes in the way you work? I, it, look, it, it's interesting, right? Because the protests, they were in 2019 and it was very rampant. Yeah, everybody knew about it, right? And it did um, it did affect getting around in Hong Kong quite a bit, right? And it actually, it, it creates more opportunities too back in 2019 because um, it's affecting the stock market. So a lot of companies, that's why there were a lot of tech privates in 2019 by the chairman because they were feeling, um, I would say, disenfranchised by how the share price is and also by the operations in Hong Kong. So it actually led to more M&A opportunities, particularly around tech privates in 2019. But then the COVID came around, there's no more protest. 
And then there are also more restrictive rules that came out. So, so there is no protest these days. So I think the protest impact, I think is, is way behind us now. Um, I think we are now dealing with how, uh, how, to, how to manage this, this, this big COVID wave, right? But at the same time, right? I mean, yeah, even though it's, yeah, there are more restrictions around like going out, um, uh, 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 meeting, uh, gathering and all that, but, but people are still focused on deals. And again, more virtually too. Exactly the point is more virtually. Just pausing there. That's all of the questions I have prepared, but if there's anything more you'd like to discuss, then now would be a good time for that. Um, I still say that this year, 2022, is a very is will be a very strong M and A year because yeah, despite yeah the the COVID never going away, um, I, I think some of the themes that I, uh, that I said that that were that were uh, highlights in 2021 will repeat themselves in 2022, um, and I think this year we're going to see some outsize the spec being done, and there will be a lot of it, and and the volume itself will, will still make up for uh, for the loss. For the lack of cross-border deals, so I would still say that 2022 will be a very robust M&A year um, for for all the market participants. Uh, is it going to be the same volume as 2021? Because yeah, globally is like a five trillion plus uh, global M&A volume in 2021. Probably not, right? Because the cross-border deals are not making uh, making making its way back in a major way. But it will still be a very uh, busy M&A year. I would say globally in all the other regions, and that's exactly what we have, what we are, what we are seeing in our pipeline across all the different regions at UBS too. Here in the US, 2020 and 2021 saw a huge uptick in the use of SPACs, for better or for worse. Who knows? Uh, around the world, the financial sector have been quick to jump in on the action. Singapore, for example, recently brought in and used its new SPAC regime for the first time. What's the status with Hong Kong, and how popular do you expect the imprint to become in in Asia? Look, I think, yeah, each each country, right? I would say each market, Hong Kong, Singapore, US, they would have their intricacies, right? Um, I think when, when the first uh, consultation came out in Hong Kong, people thought that, oh, it's quite different from what we thought the US SPACs would be. But of course it will be different, right? Because it's, it's different, different markets and different regulators too. And also in Hong Kong, there has always been a, 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 an avenue for backdoor listing, right? So, so it's, it's um, the, the line between a SPAC listing and also a backdoor listing becomes quite murky. But, but, but since then, right? Since we, uh, since the, since the consultation has been uh, set in place, um, we have actually seen six companies now. They have filed publicly uh, Hong Kong SPAC. So I guess the market participants they just got get used to it, right? And and also there are certain certain nice features about the Hong Kong SPAC too, right? because it, it, it does require the quality of the targets to be a lot better, right? They would have to be able to list on its own before they could be considered a DSPAC, right? So, so the quality of the companies here the, for DSPAC targets is, is probably stronger. And at the same time, the time frame, right, is, is 24 months to identify and sign a binding agreement and then another 12 months for you to complete. So effectively looking about 36 months, right? So, so it's, it's, uh, it's actually also quite conducive uh, to these SPAC activities um, uh, for Hong Kong listed SPACs too. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me today, Samson. It's been a fascinating conversation and I do hope everyone who listens enjoys it as much as I have recording it. Thank you. Thank you, John. Yeah, good talking to you again. Thank you. So thank you very much. And thank you for listening to this episode of Closing Conditions from IFLR. I'm John Crabb. Goodbye.